invite you to take your scriptures, if you would, this morning and turn back to that Gospel of John, chapter 3 passage. I chose John chapter 3 because I believe it's the most comprehensive passage in the Bible on the subject of the new birth and what it means to be born again. And that's really important because if you watch NFL football games, uh, listen to the media, you'll understand that the average American and those on social media have a different view of what it means to be born again. Um, For a lot of people in our secular world, they think it is an emotional religious experience, probably uh, mostly for people who are really down and out in life. Um, Or perhaps, if not that, it's a kind of Christianity, um, a narrow-minded Christianity, uh, a dogmatic, conservative kind of Christianity, kind of a, a religious belief that's on the fringe. But that, as you read John 3, is not at all what Jesus means when he uses the term born again. Um, The first thing Jesus says, almost right out of the gate, as it were, when he talks to Nicodemus, it almost seems like he's not even answering him at the first, but he says, Nicodemus, you must, 3-7, you must be born again. And the word must is the word is necessary. It's obviously a word that doesn't mean being born again is optional. Um, In other words, here's what Jesus would say. If you are a Christian, you are born again. And if you are born again, you are a Christian. Um, It's not possible to be any other kind of Christian because there is no other kind. All Christians are born again. Nicodemus, like the world or the media would think of those who are born again, was not an emotional kind of guy as much as we know from Scripture. He was a Pharisee. He lived a life that was highly moral and structured. Um, He knew the Bible well. He certainly was not a fringe person. He wasn't a person uh, that was dealing with any major issues in his life. Um, By all, um, what it seemed anyways, if you looked at his life from the outside externally, he seemed to be a guy who had it all together. Um, He, as an older man, was on the Sanhedrin. He was a member of the ruling council in Israel. Today we might say he was successful. He was a man that people looked up to. Um, He wasn't just conservative and narrow-minded, as the world might think a born-again person would be, but rather he was open-minded. He went to Jesus at night and had a dialogue with Jesus. A lot of the Pharisees didn't want to hear Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus. But Nicodemus wasn't like that. He was kind of an admirable guy that wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And Jesus says to him, this guy with all of these achievements, all the success, all the religious uh, prosperity, so to speak, he says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. It must have been quite something for Nicodemus. And if you watch the Chosen series about it, you probably saw it. Um. Basically, Jesus is saying, everything you've done so far in your life, religiously, it doesn't count for anything. To be born again, including for Nicodemus, means you have to start over with God. Now that's amazing, and I think it's why when John wrote his gospel, that he puts in John 3 the story of Nicodemus being born again, and then right next to it in John chapter 4, he puts the story of a woman who was a very immoral woman, who was not structured by religiosity at all, 
who had five husbands, and the sixth man, she was living with him, and he wasn't even her husband. Why would John tell those two stories back to back? Because here's what it is. Because everyone, no matter who you are, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to spend eternity with him and have eternal life, here's what's true of everyone. You must be born again. Everyone No matter how religious you are, no matter how moral and good you might think that you are this morning, if you're hearing me in person here on the live stream, no matter who you are, can I tell you this? You must be born again. You have to start over with God. And immediately you're saying to yourself, I'm sure, why do I have to be born again? Well, Jesus makes it very clear if you look at the first couple of verses. John chapter 3, and Nicodemus says to Jesus, um, No one, he says, Rabbi, nobody can do the things that you do, see the little word, unless he has come from God. Now, see, the little word unless is a connector word. It puts two truths side by side. One is the cause and one is the effect. Nicodemus uses it this way. Jesus, you you must be a teacher come from God. You know how I know that? Because... You do miraculous signs. So you couldn't do the miraculous things that you do unless you come from God. See how he connects those two things? So he wants to say, hey, I know something about you, Jesus. You couldn't do those things that you do unless you came from God. And immediately, here's what Jesus says right back to Nicodemus. And I know something about you, too. That unless you are born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. See what he does? He doesn't take his flattery. He doesn't take his less than accurate identity of Jesus to heart. Here's what Jesus says. Let me tell you an unless that applies to you. In fact, Jesus does it twice. Once in verse 3 and once in verse 5. And he, he repeats it. He wants Nicodemus to get it. Unless, see, connect these two things, Nicodemus. If you want to know God, you have to be born again. Let me say it directly. Verse 3. If you want to see the kingdom of God... You won't unless you are born again. Verse 5. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. Seeing the kingdom, entering the kingdom, it's a parallel statement. And you will never enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Not even you. Not even pure, moral, religious Nicodemus who keeps Torah. You'll never do it unless, connect this, you must be born again. See, he never connected that. Nicodemus never had connected that in his life. He thought if I was moral, if I was good, if my good works outweighed my bad, if I tried to be the best person I can be, and I try to be nice to people, but he never connected entering the kingdom with being born again. But in his talk with Jesus, he did. See, it's like us. Unless there is a new quarterback in Philadelphia, there won't be any playoffs for the Eagles. See, unless there's gasoline in your car... You won't be able to drive it. See, they're connected. Unless, my sister learned this over the snowstorm in Dallas, unless you have electricity, you will have no heat. Unless you have new birth, you will not enter the kingdom of God. So why do I have to be born again? The answer is this. Jesus would say to Nicodemus and to all of us, you know why? Because you need new life. That's what being born again is. It's new life. And new life comes through Jesus, through new birth. Because, hear me, because apart from Jesus, you and I in our sin are spiritually dead. 
That's why we need new life, because we don't have any life. We are spiritually dead, and we cannot see the kingdom of God. See, dead people have no, they do not have any sensitivity to stimuli, do they? They're not sensitive. They, they can't see, they can't hear, they can't taste anything. And the same is true of spiritually dead people. We have no spiritual sensitivity to any spiritual stimuli. What do you mean by that, Pastor Walker? A lot of people I know, great people, lost people though, see they are spiritually dead people and they enjoy sports and they enjoy art and they love music and they read books. But when it comes to spiritual truths that are put in the Bible, see they have no real interest in them. They find them to be irrelevant and for some people in our modern day, they find them to even be offensive. And the reason is, is they have no spiritual sight. They can't see those realities. They have no spiritual hearing. They have no spiritual joy. They have no spiritual connection to God. God's life is not in them, and they've never been changed. They've never been affected and transformed by truth. But when you're born again, Jesus says, when my life lives inside of you, see, you have a new identity. You have new desires. You have new interests. You have new senses. You can see things differently. You think of things differently. You have a new behavior as a result of the life that's in you. I have heard so many people say, Pastor Walker, I sat here for years, and I heard those truths, and I heard those truths, and I heard those, but I never really heard them. But when I became a Christian, when I was born again, now I get it. <laughs> now I get it. I understand those things before. And I want to say, well, why didn't you get it before? You know what the answer is? You were dead. You were spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 in the New Testament says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You say, well, Pastor Walker, that's pretty stiff, isn't it? That's, That's kind of harsh. Can't you tone it down a little bit? And the answer is no. You know why? Because the Bible does not say that you were sick in your sins. It does not say that you were hurting in your sins, although your sins can do that. It doesn't even say that you were disabled in your sins. You know what it says? You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your sins. That's why... We need to be born again because we were dead. We had no life. Jesus, earlier in this very same gospel, in chapter 1 of John, verses 12 and 13, says, But as many as received him, he gave them the right to be called or become the children of God. Now notice what it says, who were born. But what kind of birth? Not of blood, not physically born, not of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but see, they had to be born of God. See, Jesus realizes this, that every person who comes into this world is a sinner and they're spiritually dead. And if you're ever going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to be born again. You need another birth. I often give the illustration that describes what spiritual death is. I've heard preachers from the pulpit describe your need for salvation as if you're out in the middle of the ocean of your sins and you're on the surface of the water struggling. You keep going under and you keep coming back up and you're struggling and you're just about to go under for the last time and Jesus throws a life buoy to you from a boat and you hold on it and he pulls you in. Can I tell you, that's not salvation. That's not salvation. You are not struggling on the surface. You are dead. And the oceans of your sin, you're not on the top and the surface. You're on the bottom of the ocean floor. You've been dead the whole time. 
Jesus doesn't throw you a life buoy and pull you in. He swims down to the bottom and takes your dead corpse and brings life into it and then brings you to the surface. That's what it means to be born again. See? Because being born again is not simply, can I say it? It's not simply turning over a new leaf. It's receiving a new life. It's receiving a new life. Being born again is what God does when he makes spiritually dead people alive. Alive. See, you don't, need, you don't need to be a better person. You need to be a wholly different person. So how, Pastor Walker, okay? This is what I need. How, how is someone born again? You remember when you were growing up, and I won't, I won't sing because that would be frightening, but you remember Pinocchio, the story, the whole thing? You know, Geppetto has this puppet, and he really loves this puppet he made, and he wants it to be a real boy, so one night he wishes upon a star, right? Not knowing the blue fairy, I think it was. Here's that, and then, uh, and, and grants Pinocchio partial life, so to speak, to be a real boy, but he can't be completely a real boy until he earns that he's worthy of it, right? He proves it. So eventually at the end, you know, he saves Geppetto on the ocean and the ship and all that sort of thing, only to forfeit his life in doing so, right? Can I tell you this? You want to be made a Christian, a real Christian? It's not because you can wish upon a star to get it. It's not because, literally, it's not because some magical creature tests you to make sure you're worthy of it before you get real spiritual life. You know what it is? It's not Pinocchio giving his life for the person he loved. It's the other way around, see? It's Jesus who died on the cross for you. It's not you doing something for him. It's him doing something for you that you could never do. That's what makes you alive. See, that's what spiritual birth is. Hold your finger here, and I actually want you to look at this verse in John chapter 16 and verse 21. These are chapters... Of Jesus with his disciples on the very last night together before he'd be crucified. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is teaching them. Um, Much of this is called the Upper Room Discourse. And Jesus is going to give a metaphor, an analogy. And here's what he says in John 16 and verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, underline it, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. If you know anything about John's gospel, you know that the one term Jesus used, especially toward the last few days of his life, describing, and actually beyond that, describing when he would die on the cross for sins, he calls it his hour. He says, when I die on the cross, I'm going to pay the penalty for your sins. And, and my hour isn't here yet, but it's coming. And eventually, John 13, he says, finally, my hour has come. And so when he takes that analogy, here's what Jesus describes what his cross has done for sinners. It's like a woman giving birth. In Jesus' day, not like ours, it's relatively safe to have a baby today. And, but not so in Jesus' day. When you had a baby, you were risking your life often. In fact, that happened quite often. When a woman would have a child, 
she would give her life in order to, for that child to be brought into this world. And Jesus says, that's what it's like for you to be born again. See, that's what my hour means. That's what my cross accomplished. See, you were a sinner, and I had to go through the suffering. I had to go through the sorrow. I had to go through the pain of bringing you into this world. You, without that, you could not be alive. I, I was, probably one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced was being in the delivery room for all three of my children. And, you know, you, it, it looks a little bad. Some, my wife had a C-section. I was in there for all of that. You know, how did you do that? Well, it's your children, right? It's the most amazing thing to see your child be born. And I remember when Will was born, my first boy, I remember the doctor said, kind of shocked me. I'm sitting there thinking, like, this is the greatest thing ever. And he goes, here you go. And he gives me these surgical scissors. Why don't you cut the umbilical cord? I go, are you kidding me? And I did. And you know what I think looking back on that? See, I realized when I cut that, see, he was totally dependent on her for life. And she brought him into this. She gave him life. Without her suffering, without her pain, without her agony, it would never have happened. See, when you love someone, you're willing to take that risk. And here's what Jesus says. You know what it means to be born again? That's what I did for you. See, you would never have life. Someone has to love you enough to risk. He didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. See, it was his sorrow and his sacrifice and his suffering that he brought children into the world. That's why he said in John 1, see, I'll give you the right to be one of my children because my cross is what it takes for you to be brought into this world. So here's what you have to think. Here's what you have to know and believe like Nicodemus did. You cannot come to the conclusion that all that Jesus is is a very good example and religious teacher. It's more than that. Do you see at the beginning in the verses of John 3? Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God. See, that was flattering to Nicodemus. And even though people opposed Jesus, he even called them rabbi, which was an honored teacher. See, but you got later on in our text, after the you must be born again text, in verses 9 through 15, here's what Jesus says to that flattery. He says, Nicodemus, you're wrong, because you know who I really am? Look at verse 13. John, thir- John chapter 3 and verse 13. I'm not just a teacher. I didn't just come into this world to teach you some really good things. Here's what he says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He goes, I just didn't come from God. I was with God. In fact, he's going to tell us later that I am God. See, I'm not just a teacher. Now, every religion in the world, you name it, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, you, you know, all these people, they send te- teachers who were on earth and they taught us how to live. Everyone's founder of the religion was a teacher. Jesus was not just a teacher. Amen. He did not just keep, now listen, if you follow Jesus' teachings and you want to live in his way, that's, that's fantastic. That's not what it means to be born again, as good as that is. Jesus was a teacher, but he was more than the teacher, and he will not let Nicodemus settle for that. And he does it by using what seems to be a crazy illustration. He says, I came from heaven, and I came to earth, not just to give you good teachings. Here's what I did. He goes, and he draws on a story about Moses and the serpent on the pole from Numbers 21. And he says that in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent or the snake in the wilderness, so must the son. See, like you must be born again. Same word. You must understand. This is why I came, Nicodemus. You know the story? 
Israel had sinned against God. They were complaining, and God was striking them in judgment, and many people were dying. And he instructed Moses to take this bronze pole, set it in the middle of the camp, put a snake on the top of it. In fact, our medical profession people have that little snake on a pole to this day because it's about healing. That's what it symbolizes and stands for. And he said, put that snake on the pole, and all you got to do, listen to this, all you got to do is look to that, and you will be saved. You just look to that, and you'll be healed. And people did it. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to be worthy. They didn't have to do any good. They didn't have to make a prayer. They didn't have to be religious. No, you look to that, and you live. See, Jesus is saying that to Nicodemus. You know how you're born again? Not just by following my teachings, as good as they are. You need to look away from yourself and to your, from your religiosity and all your good works. Look away from that and look to me. Look to me on the cross. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, was one of the greatest preachers of the 1800s, one of my favorite in uh, church history. And he tells the story of the day that he was born again. He was a young man, I think only about 10 or 12 years old. It was a very snowy day in London. And so he went to, wanted to go to a church service on Sunday, and it was snowing, and not very many people were growing up. That sounds familiar, right? Um, but he did. And he walked through the snow, and he came to a little um, Methodist church and chapel, although he would become a Baptist preacher later in his life. And he walked in, and there weren't many people there. In fact, the preacher didn't make it. That probably wouldn't go over here. But the preacher didn't make it in the snow. But so one of the leaders in the church stood up and was going to give a message that day to the few people that were there. And Spurgeon said, I sat right under the edge of the balcony. He remembered that. And he said, and the man who was not eloquent and didn't know a lot of things uh, stood up to preach that day. And he, his text was Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, because I am God and there is no other. And he said he was going on, look. He says, look, means you have to look away. And he went through the preaching, look away from this, look away from that. Look away from your self-righteousness and look to me. And he says, and be saved, he said. And then he said, Spurgeon said, because there were very few people, he pointed and looked right at me, and he said, young man, now that definitely wouldn't go over. He said, young man, you need to look to Jesus and live. And Spurgeon said, when he said those words, it was like a light dawned on him, and he looked to Jesus on the cross, and he began to live. It changed his life. See, that's what Jesus is talking about. He didn't come just to be a teacher. He came to be the Savior, to save you from your sins. Well, how do you know then, Pastor Walker, if, if you have to look to Jesus and his cross, death, and resurrection to know, to, to be born again, well, how would I know if I am? Well, that's where the last section comes in, the famous verse, John 3, 16, 16 through 21. And if you look at the structure of it real quickly with me, would you look there in the Bible? There's three little times. Four is used, the little word four. The first one is verse 16, how it starts. For God so look, but see, it's an answer. There's another one, if you look down in verse number um, 17, I believe it is. For God did not send his son into the world. And the last one is verse 20. See, four, four, there are three reasons. Here's what he's saying. You know why I had to come and I had to be lifted up on the cross? You know why I had to die like the serpent was put in the pole? And you know what? Because you know why you have to be born again? Here's why. 
three, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But, but listen to this. Verse 17 says, God didn't, For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but the world might be saved through it, he says. And then he comes to verse 19, leading into the third little four. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. Do you see the contrast? Do you see what John is saying? He says, here's why Jesus had to die. He had to be lifted up on the cross. You know why? Because our problem is that we are dead in our sins. And you know how that fleshes itself out? You know how it expresses itself? It's it's a contrast. God loved you but you don't love him. Do you see it? God so loved the world, but men love darkness. That's how deep it goes. It's not just on the surface of your life. It's not just once in a while you might look at something on the internet that's wrong or a bad word comes out of your mouth or you're not very nice to your wife or your children. It isn't. It's deeper, way deeper. You see, Being dead in your sins goes down to the core and the essence of who you really are. And Jesus says, that's why I didn't just come to be a teacher or give you a good example. I actually had to die on the cross. That's how much your sin has got a hold of you. That's why he had to die that way. He says, God loved you, but you did not love him back. And so you needed someone who could come into your life and do something that would completely revolutionize your love, your desires, the core of who you are. Because those two loves cannot, if God loves you but you don't love him, see, you can't be born again. You can't know him. You can't have a relationship with him. Here, let me say it this way. No new life, no new love. And people... In our sins, love darkness rather than light. And it doesn't take too long looking around our world, especially in our day, to realize how definitely true that is. Augustine said this, you are what you love. If you love darkness, you are not born again. One of the the marks of someone who's born again, Ephesians 5, 7, and 8 says this, but you were once darkness. Not in darkness, You were darkness. It was your identity. It was who you are. You were once darkness, but now. Now what? Now that Jesus has come. Now that he died for you on the cross. Now that you received. But now you are what, he says. You are in the light. So walk like it, he says. Born again, people who are not born again, they don't just love darkness. Get this, it's even deeper than that. They hate the light. Did you see it in the text? They love darkness and they hate the light. When you are spiritually dead, you love what you should hate and you hate what you should love. It's a love-hate problem. It really is. And notice with Jesus, there's no neutrality. Have you ever had someone say, hey, Pastor Walker, I don't come to church and I really don't do this and I don't live this way and I do have this in my life, but I really still love God. (laughs) It's deception. I hate to say it, it's a lie. You don't. Because here's what's true of people who are not born again. They love darkness and they hate truth. They hate the light. And you know why there's no neutrality with Jesus when it comes to this issue? It's because they can't come to the light 
if I tried to water this down and make it not as bad as it really was, I would be hurting you. You know why? Because it's not until you come to the grip of this reality, realizing this is keeping you from God. When you love darkness and hate the light, it says you don't come to the light. You will not come to God. That's why all the other religions of the world have teachers who come to you and give you truth. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You come to the teacher for the truth, I should say. But in Jesus' case, he comes to you because you never will. You would never come to him. You would never seek him, Romans chapter 3. You would not come after God because you're dead. And you love darkness and you hate the truth, he says. So do you need, see, see the little fours? Do you know why you need to be born again? You know why? Because you are dead. And you have a love-hate relationship that is going in the opposite direction that it ought to go in. So Jesus does say, and everyone loves to quote it, all I got to do is believe. If you believe in the Lord, you won't perish. And it's true, but you don't finish the paragraph. See, believing has a behaving to it. Not to earn it, but because of it. When you believe on him, it says, if you don't believe in him, you are condemned already. You are absolutely right. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God that he was the one lifted up on the pole, that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again. If you do not believe that, you cannot enter the kingdom. But what will it look like when you do? That's what the last three verses say. You'll have a different love-hate relationship, see? Because a new life will produce new love. Listen, and a new heart will produce a new hate. See, you won't hate the things of God. You will love them. It will be reversed in your life. Augustine, who I mentioned a few moments ago, the early church father in the 300s, before he was converted and born again, he became a Christian. He was basically a sex addict, to be honest with you. After he was born again, his life changed. And years later, he was traveling in a town doing some speaking at a church. And he was approached by a woman, and he saw her from a distance, and he immediately knew who he was. she was. She was a woman that he used to have an immoral relationship with. And she came up, and when she recognized it was him and hadn't seen him for years, she was very excited to see him. And she came up to him, and they talked for a little bit, and he didn't want to stand there and talk to her too long, and so he was going to leave. He said his goodbyes, and as he was walking away, she couldn't quite make out why he was so different. Why he really didn't have the same relationship as they once had. And so, as he was walking away, she was thinking to herself, well, maybe, maybe he just didn't recognize that it was me. Maybe he just didn't, it's been years, so maybe he didn't know who he was talking to. And so as, as Augustine is walking away, she says this to him, and she yells at Augustine, it is I. And you know what he says? He goes, I know, but it is not I. He had been changed. He was changed. See, a new life brings a new love. A new heart, a new hate. See, he, Augustine had a new love for Jesus and a new hatred for his own sin and self-righteousness. Let me close with this. You know, Nicodemus is mentioned three times in John's Gospel, the one that we're focusing on this morning, on John 3, when he comes to Jesus, notice, in the darkness, he came at night because that's where he started he was religious and moral, but he loved darkness. He just didn't know it. That's the, not the only time he's mentioned. He's mentioned two other times, and you could read them for yourself. In John 7, 
verses 50 and 51, and John 19, verses 39 through 42. And what you find is a progressive change in Nicodemus' life. First, he comes just asking questions of Jesus. He comes in the darkness, and it's amazing. The other two passages, especially the third one, they look back to that passage. This is the same guy who came to Jesus at night, it says. And so they want you to remember where he started, because that's not where he ended. He got to talk about being born again, and then in chapter 7, everybody's ridiculing Jesus. Even the soldiers are mesmerized by him, and they said, why didn't you arrest him? Because no man ever talked like this. And they say, are you also deceived? And then out of all these religious chief priests and Pharisees, Nicodemus stands up in the middle of all of his peers that he had built a successful life on. This is who he had been. And he begins to defend Jesus in front of everyone. He was risking his reputation and his success. At the very end of John's gospel, in chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified. And I've always wondered if Nicodemus possibly was there because he was there to take his body down with Joseph of Arimathea. I wonder if he remembered what Jesus said. When Jesus was on the cross, I wonder if Nicodemus looked at him and said, oh, that's what it means when the serpent was lifted up and you said you'd be lifted up. I wonder if he got it. I think he did. You know why? Because the last thing we hear of Nicodemus in John's gospel is that him and Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked to have Jesus' body. You know, when Jesus was crucified, none of his disciples, other than John, who appeared at the cross, they wouldn't even admit that they knew Jesus. Peter denied him. None of the disciples were at the cross. They were not going out in public. They were shut up in a room because they were afraid for their lives. But here is Nicodemus now at the end of the gospel. He is publicly risking literally being identified with Jesus and perhaps in doing so his life. Not only that, but him and Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body off the cross. To touch and handle a dead body in Leviticus is making you unclean. And this is hours before the Passover. So he is risking his reputation, his success. He is risking being unclean and what it means to be a Pharisee and follow God. And he does what only women and slaves would do, and that is to clean up and bury a dead body. And he did more than just that. He was bearing a king, and he brought spices and things that would have been only what rich people could afford. And Joseph and Arimathea did that, and Nicodemus helped him. What happened? Nicodemus, I think, had been born again. He had a new love, and you know what his new love was? Jesus. And you know how he expressed it? It wasn't just a love in his heart that he kept to himself. No, he showed it by asking for Pilate to get the body and to taking care of Jesus' body and putting and lavishing his... See, he expressed it on how much he used, what he used his money for. And he was showing people that Jesus was more important than my money, my success, my history, my former identity. He was now my everything. See, that's what it is. That's born again. That's what it looks like. People have a new love, and now he hated his self-righteousness, and he hated his sin, and he didn't care what anyone else thought. See, that's born again. That's what happened to Nicodemus. Can I ask you? Has that happened to you? Oh, really? I mean, really has happened to you. I know that you might believe all those facts about who Jesus is and what he did, and you might have even said a prayer, and all those things are good and right to do. But let me ask you, are you born again? What does it look like in your life? 
Has the love-hate relationship reversed? Has it flip-flopped? Has it totally transformed your life? See, he wasn't informed or reformed. He was transformed from the inside out. That's how you can see the kingdom of God. That's how you can have a relationship with God. You must be born again. Have you been? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. New birth. It's so exciting physically. We have women in our church who are having babies soon. Oh, what a great time it's going to be. But can I say something far greater than that is when people are born again spiritually. And maybe you were here this morning and maybe you've been here for a long time, perhaps many years. Maybe this is your first time or perhaps somewhere in between. But as you heard the word of God this morning, and I pray as the wind blows, so, so the spirit was, and maybe you say to yourself in your heart of hearts, I'm not sure if I'm really born again. I, I know what it means. I know what salvation is. I know that I believe those things. But to be honest, I'm not sure if it's ever changed my life. See, after the service, I'll stick around for just a few moments. If you'd like to talk about being born again, I'd love to share with you or have someone in, in our church open the Bible and show you how you can be born again and know God. If you're at home, you're watching live stream, please call the church, set up an appointment. One of the pastors would love to take the scriptures and show you like Nicodemus, like Jesus showed Nicodemus, how you can have new life. Father, you are our father because we are your children, and that's only possible because of the life and death and sacrifice and suffering of our Lord Jesus in our place. I'm so thankful for the reality of new birth, for those who are here this morning who find themselves more than likely to be religious or moral or as good as they can, and perhaps they've come to the realization that that's not at all what God is looking for, and, it, and it's not at all what is necessary. It's that they can't be good enough because Jesus was good in their place. He died for them and rose again. That's forgiveness. That's salvation. That's eternal life. And this life is only in your son. I pray that they today, like Nicodemus did, would humble themselves and not worry what anyone else thinks. But know this, that they want to have life in your name. Would you do that this morning by the power of your word and your Holy Spirit? Would you transform people totally into a new person through Jesus Christ, our Lord? And we'll thank you for it. It's in his name we ask it. Amen.